Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. My guest today is Maya Oppenheim. She's the women's correspondent at The Independent, which is the only role like this at a UK news outlet. I have a great conversation with Maya about how she pitched and landed her role, the topics that she writes about, the story that she's most proud of, how she deals with trolling online, and the inspiration for her first book, The Pocket Guide to the Patriarchy. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today, Maya. I want to get into the question that I ask all of my guests, which is tell us the story of your very first period. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, and it's such a, yeah, such a good idea for a podcast, really simple, but, you know, powerful format. So my first period, I feel like, you know, it's the day that, you know, you wait for. Um, and then it finally comes and almost like, like with a lot of things in life, somehow the waiting for it, um, and the apprehensiveness and nervousness is almost worse than the actual event itself. Um, and it came when I was 12. And I remember I really wasn't expecting it. I think because of the fact that I'd been, you know, carrying around um, pads in my bag while I was going to secondary school, I always just thought it will come when I'm at secondary school because that was the kind of like, well, that would be the worst case scenario. And that was, you know, the situation that I was prepared for. But it, well, I wasn't at school. I was in Essex um, at a caravan that I used to go to as a kid with my own parents and my sister and I had other family friends that went there. But actually, I wasn't with my parents. And I think that did upset me. I was with my um, dad's ex-wife, which, you know, that sounds more dramatic than it was. They're like still, you know, very close friends. Um, and yeah, so I was with her and her daughter and my sister. And I remember I was in my nightdress, um, orange nightdress that was like a hand-me-down from my mum. Very nice nightdress with like embroidered pears on it. I remember my sister noticing a, um, you know, like a relatively big patch of um, blood on my nightdress and I hadn't noticed it. And I remember once she noticed that, I thought, oh, it must be my period. Um, and just, I think I was shocked that I wasn't in pain, not because I necessarily thought that periods would be painful, but I guess there was the kind of like unknowing, um, kind of uncertain nature of them and I don't think you know I had 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 a lot of education on what periods really were I definitely didn't understand the biology of them no way um and so I just associated blood with pain like a lot of us do so I think I do remember being surprised I wasn't in pain I did have a little cry I was upset um not you know like devastated but I think just I was a bit shocked and unsettled and then it wasn't a major thing, but it must have been, you know, a bit of something because I remember my grandparents lived, they're not alive anymore, but they um, lived in Essex. They lived in Chelmsford and they drove down to um, get me. And then they took me back home to my parents in um, Hackney and Dalston. And 
Yeah, I remember like my mum saying, you know, like, you know, have a shower, like a normal response. But and I remember being scared to get into the shower due to thinking like, oh, God, it's all going to you like pour out of me all this blood like a power shower. And I'm like, you know, really scared to see all this blood. And I don't want to like, you know, make the bath dirty. So, yeah, that does show a real, you know, lack of understanding of periods. So, yeah, I would say I was unsettled by the whole thing. Um probably due to a lack of education about periods at secondary school. And when you then saw your parents after your grandparents collected you, what did they say to reassure you and to kind of educate you about what was going on? I think, you know, I'd all I'd already known quite a bit, you know, about what periods were, you know, thanks to my parents, you know, especially my mum. So you know, my mum is just, you know, we call her a saint. She's absolutely lovely. Um, She, I mean, I'm biased, but yeah, people that aren't related to her and aren't friends with her also think the same. But yeah, so she was, you know, super reassuring and kind and gentle. And yeah, I wasn't kind of like, yeah, I wasn't, I don't think I was, I think I was just a bit unsettled because it came earlier than I thought it would. Came at the age of 12. My mum's, you know, had come when she was later. I think periods, from what I've heard, now um, come earlier. Is that yes. right? Yeah, the average age is going down. In the UK, yeah. the average age is about 12. But in like in South America, it, it's going down to like nine, 10 years old, which is incredibly young. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I wasn't expecting it, basically. And I think somehow being off on holiday at the caravan, like, it seemed to really come from nowhere. It didn't feel like the right time for it to come. But like in retrospect, actually, it was quite a good time for it to come. Much better than being at school. Yeah. And so you were in year eight, year seven? Yeah, year, year eight. eight, year eight. So 12. Okay. And so you had thought, you, you, but what's interesting is that you were still, you were carrying the pads around in your bag mm-hmm. in almost in anticipation, even though you didn't think you it was going to come until you were in year nine or so. Yeah, no, that is interesting. I guess that must have been my mum's input, probably, I'd imagine, you know, wanting me to be prepared. I mean, it's a good idea, I think, to have them because, you know, asking teachers for that kind of thing, you know, at the secondary school I went to and a lot of others, it would have been absolutely mortifying. And, you know, that's as much to do with how you feel yourself as a child, you know, and your own kind of probably internalized shame and taboo and stigma. Um, uh, which obviously, you know, massively surrounds periods, still does now and did so way more back then. So I think, yeah, it would have been mortifying for me as a, yeah, as an awkward teenager to ask a teacher for, you know, a pad. Yeah. And then after your first period, what was your experience of your period like as you went into your teenage years? Um, I was lucky that they weren't very painful. I've never had particularly painful periods. I've never, you know, I haven't had, yeah, I'm, yeah, I feel very fortunate. Um, and what was it like? I'd say the main problems were just the bullying about periods in my secondary school. Um, I went to, yeah, a mixed comprehensive state school in Hackney. Um, yeah, it was, there was quite a lot of bullying in the school. It's definitely the school's changed a lot now like now to what it was like back then you know you could say the school's almost been gentrified as the area's changed um and 
yeah, it was like I remember P P um was a nightmare. I used to be so anxious if I was on my period in the changing rooms, but I was also anxious even if I wasn't on my period. And it was just like the constant fear of leaking in school. And I remember I'd have these white Mackenzie tracksuits I always used to wear and I was just mortified um that I was gonna leak and I was all you know, it was also it wasn't just me. I remember like, you know, all the girls would be like, you know, checking each other to see if they leaked. Um and it was just, yeah, this constant unshakable fear that you were gonna leak, like even when you weren't on your period, you know, was it gonna spontaneously arrive? And I remember in science lessons, um, uh, you know, having my tampons burnt in the bunts and burners. I remember like going to the toilet and coming back once and I'm sure it happened more than once actually. And um having like um sanitary, you know, the sticky bits from sanitary pads having them stuck around, you know, the science lab. So, yeah, it felt like there was a lot of bullying related to period. Was it from other girls or was it from the boys or both? Uh, it was more the boys, but also the girls. But I think with the, yeah, what I'm just saying now about, you know, the pads and the um the burning of the tampon and the Bunsen burner, that was the boys. So they would go through your bag and then see if you had tampons or pads in there. And then burn the, burn the tampons. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the burning only happened once, but I think the um, sticking of the pads happened. You know, a couple of times. I can't remember exactly. You know, you know the exact logistics and details because you know it was a long time ago, and I probably tried to block it out. Yeah, and did that bullying around periods did did it affect? You mentioned anxiety and feeling anxious even when you weren't on your period. Did that affect your your kind of relationship with your your period and your body for a while? Mm, I'd say luckily it probably eased off when I was out of the secondary school environment. Like as soon as I got to sixth form, it kind of went. I wouldn't say it was something that, you know, was a kind of has been a long enduring, you know, an inescapable um, feature of my life. Luckily, I think, though, yeah, it was. But yeah periods were very much something to be hidden i remember i'd have my um yeah period items i'd keep them in my pencil case um and then i think what was really stressful was when you wanted to go to the toilet and you wanted to take you know a pad with you and you'd have to hide it or you'd like you know put a tampon up your sleeve um and rush to the toilet and you wouldn't want you know teachers to see it. you wouldn't want other pupils to see it so yeah it was always like you know trying to hide this kind of um you know inescapable biological function it must be so interesting for you now seeing these campaigns like bloody good period had a campaign i think last year getting people to stop hiding their tampon up their and pads up their sleeves knowing what you went through when you were in in um in school mm. yeah i know it is great that there's actually been so much movement on this issue and that you know there has, yeah, periods, like the whole conversation around periods looks, you know, very different than it did, you know, half a decade ago, let alone, you know, a decade ago, even bigger different. Yeah. And what's your relationship with your period like now? I mean, I don't have periods now. I don't have periods since I went on the contraceptive pill after having an abortion um, in uh, January 2022. And, um, and so, yeah, the contraceptive pill that I'm on, which is great. I found it to be, yeah, super, super good for me. No side effects, really. 
um, and the desogestrel pill. And, um, yeah, I, that's just stopped my period. So I haven't had periods for a while, but yeah, before that, I would say I was never someone that was like, you know, had massive, um, or really any kind of particularly bad physical, um, symptoms from periods, you know, a little bit of cramps, a little bit of backache, but you know, nothing too bad and nothing really, you know, stopping me from living my life. But I definitely was, you know, suffering from, um, premenstrual, you know, stress, premenstrual tension. I never know what the right term for it is. You know, I've have, have had that at other stages of my life and like, probably yeah when i was younger not really known what it was um and i wish i'd been you know better educated on it but for me as a kid growing up you know luckily i came from a very kind of open um house you know my parents are both you know very open people um so i was educated by periods about them but i don't remember you know having much education about periods in primary school or secondary school and if i did it didn't really seem to stick in my head much Okay. So now you have a really, really interesting role. So you were the woman's correspondent at The Independent, which is the only role like this in a UK news outlet. Can you talk a little bit more about the role and how you got this title and the kind of issues that you tend to focus on? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I work as the women's correspondent. Um, yeah, I'm a journalist at The Independent. I pitched them this role. Um, after working as a general news reporter, then before that, I was on the people section. That was like the indies take on celebrity news. Um, but you know, very different, um, kind of style to, you know, other, uh, um, newspapers kind of brand of just, you know, showbiz, um, people reporting. Um, but then, yeah, this role of women's correspondent. Yeah. It was amazing to have them create it for me. Um, after I pitched it to them. And yeah, so I've been in the role since 2018. I write news stories, exclusives, interviews, features, um, you know, exploring national news, social policy, global stories from a women's angle, from a gender angle. Um, yeah, main areas I focus on would be domestic abuse, sexual violence, abortion rights, sex work rights, health, childcare, poverty prisons wider criminal justice system stories um human rights yeah all like yeah loads of things it's a really broad broad um beat and yeah that's one of the you know the many things that yeah i like about it do you find that certain topics tend to come up quite frequently in your reporting or when you're you get you know articles given you to you to write or there's there themes that are just you see constantly yeah it's a good question i mean just to say a lot of the articles i write they aren't given to me to write you know that's my it's my idea and i am involved with it you know from the very you know it yeah the earliest stages of idea formulation i'll pitch the idea to an editor obviously sometimes you know they do ask me to write yeah they ask me to write things um or you know there's major stories that break in the news agenda but yeah same things coming up um yeah i mean i'm not sure if i totally understand your question like i would say all those issues i just listed they come up time and time again and those are the areas that you know i feel really passionate about writing about Hmm. so you mentioned domestic abuse and violence against women's and girl women and girls and you've covered andrew tate quite extensively. Can you talk a little bit about 
Andrew Tate and your investigation into him for people who are listening who may not be familiar with um with him and share some of the key insights that you you learned from your investigation. Yeah, so for people that maybe don't know who Andrew Tate is or they see his name bandied around and they're never quite sure who he is. So he's a misogynistic influencer. He's a former kickboxing world champion, you know, turned kind of self-avowed success coach. And yeah, I think um, you have done a lot of stories about Andrew Tate over the years. So it's kind of, yeah, hard to know where to start in a way. Um, But yeah, a story I did that probably would be the one that I'm most proud of. The headline was the murky online world of Andrew Tate and pickup artists. So people that don't know what a pickup artist is, it's um it's a lot darker and more sinister than I feel like it sounds like on the tin. Um so pick up artists. So it's yeah, it's a term that's kind of linked to an industry where men are basically trying to cajole women into sleeping with them, whether that's via charm and compliments or mind games, but then also coercion and harassment. So yeah, this investigation, yeah, it uncovered um these videos of Andrew Tate um, and his brother Tristan. Um, and it, yeah, it kind of shows their former careers as um, pickup artists. And yeah, some of the mad stuff that they, you know, were saying on these videos. I don't know. I can give you some examples. Um, so, so basically, yeah, I found um, that, you know, for sums that could run into hundreds of pounds, users were encouraged to sign up for access to the brother's content. So for, instance the Tate webcam program provides a quote-unquote PhD course and that was the name of the program you know Tate webcam program to quote-unquote to teach you how to obtain and retain unlimited beautiful women in this course will teach you how to turn them into cold hard cash other courses advertisers being run by Andrew Tate teach participants uh, you know quote-unquote how to lie as well as quote-unquote how to intimidate and then quote-unquote, how to get your girl on lockdown, and quote-unquote, how to have multiple women who are all loyal to you. This investigation was from July last year. I'm not sure if the videos are still online, but I think, yeah, I'll give you an example of what Tristan Tate, his younger brother, was saying, because, you know, this stuff is absolutely mad. Um, So, yeah, so videos of Tristan Tate show him teaching, you know, pick-up artistry. He basically boasts about being... Um, quote unquote, one of the baddest pl- pay- playboys in the world and an elite level, level guy. He calls himself. He also talks about, you know, how to sleep with virgin in one clip. He explains he has multiple girlfriends who are all exclusive to him. You know, he brags about women who, you know, these are his words verbatim, who cry their eyes out if I stop speaking to them in his own words. He, you know, he says that is power. Um, the influencer. Yeah. He also explains how he looks for girlfriends. Who leaves their phone unlocked and do not mind if he looks at the, the device, as well as someone he says, you know, who never goes out the room to take a phone call, cleans up my house and cooks my meals. And then, you know, he says, I'm reading his quote, if those things are adding up, then I'll usually turn it into something serious. I'll tell her she is exclusively with me. You know, um, he also says he will never trust a woman like I will trust a man. Um, also saying that while he knows his girlfriend do not cheat on him, you have to test their loyalty, you know, and he suggests that you do this by saying, hey, baby, give me your phone, unlock it. I want to do something. Um, Don't do shit. Take a selfie and give it back to her. So, yeah, I just found it all incredibly disturbing and depressing. 
Yeah, what's really wild about all of this is how, and I'm, I, I don't, I'm not a Luddite by any means. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of these people that is very reactionary about TikTok and Instagram, but how these messages, these video clips that other, their followers were sharing on TikTok spread like wildfire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the al- TikTok algorithm kind of fed into that and was just showing, showing these videos to, mm-hmm. you know, very impressionable young, mm-hmm. young boys, especially. You know, seeing the impact of this in schools. Yeah. It's just un- like I have a 10 year old son and, you know, I've had to have conversations with him about Andrew Tate and the messages that he, him and his brother are um, sharing about women because some of his friends talk about Andrew Tate. It's wild at 10 years old hearing this kind of stuff. Yeah. God, it's shocking, isn't it? Um, and really worrying because these are very impressionable kids, you know, kids are very, very receptive. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, bullying that goes on in schools and probably, you know, young teenage boys that do a lot of vile things, but then maybe, you know, grow up and, you know, some of them hopefully grow out of it. Some of them, you know, sadly do not. So I guess it's just the fact that he's getting, you know, this massive influence on such, such young boys. I think it's just, um, you know, the opulent, um, jets and yachts and, you know, the luxury lifestyle. So then that can kind of serve as a gateway, um, to getting people hooked on, you know, more dangerous, more extreme, more far right, you know, heavily misogynistic content. And that, you know, some people, they just see a clip of him, you know, waffling on about, you know, being successful and, all of this and it kind of um looks far more you know benign and innocuous than it is and then sometimes you know I'll speak to people who you know in my personal life and stuff I've I've encountered people who like him but you know to be fair to them it's because you know it's naive and idiotic of them to be lured in by him but it's also because well they claim to have only watched his success videos um and they you know like what he says about success um and they haven't seen the other stuff. Yeah, it's. It, I think it really speaks to the importance of media literacy and being able to really interrogate the messages that you're seeing and also the importance of this teaching this in schools, you know, understanding like, you know, when someone says something, you don't just accept it at face value. You need to do your own research. And, you know, especially with messages like this, like what they're saying about, women and how women and girls need to be treated it's absolutely wild it's very disturbing definitely I think what's hard about it is sometimes you know um people like there's so much you know bad and dark stuff that Andrew Tate has said about women and you know gender relationships um on the internet you can just see it's all there and yet then people will kind of deny that he's a misogynist and it's like you know these comments that he's made they're not veiled they're you know out and open and brazen and plain for all to see so then you just think yeah I'm kind of coming up against someone who it seems like they're quite delusional you know they are just defending him till the end of the earth. Mm. This actually leads really nicely into um, my next question, which is about your first book called The Pocket Guide to the Patriarchy. So the truth about misogyny and how it affects us all. 
It came out last year and it's such an interesting title. And, you know, the topics that you uncover in the book are really interesting. Can you just talk a little bit about why you wanted to write about, about this topic? Yeah, sure. So just to say that, yeah, I don't know if you know, but the book's got a um, chapter in there about periods. So that's one of, um, yeah, 21 chapters. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, 22. It was the idea for the book was very much informed by, you know, the journalism I do day in, day out in this role as women's correspondent, feeling like I was encountering, you know, friends, family, friends, acquaintances, um, and just feeling like even, you know, very well-informed, you know, kind of curious, engaged people, I felt like actually they weren't kind of aware of just, you know, quite how, you know, virulent misogyny was, quite how widespread mainstream, quite, you know, how the rise of the wider, the wider rise of the far right was feeding into, you know, misogyny becoming more kind of acceptable and normalized and legitimized um and just feeling like there's just you know so many kind of facts and figures um and examples out there that people need to be aware of so the book yeah it's got um 22 chapters i won't list them all but just to give you a vague sense it is um yeah chapter on abortion domestic abuse periods like i said gender pay gap men in the far right childcare policing but yeah mental health i won't list them all um and then a the last chapter on feminist icons to galvanize you, another chapter on um, intersectional feminism. So I guess it was just kind of the issues that felt, um, you know, most important to me, closest to my heart. Obviously, you know, then it's no mean, you know, exhaustive. Um, and there'll be other issues in there that I wasn't able to include in the 200 pages. And what sort of reaction have you got um, from the book? Because, you know, when you talk about misogyny and the patriarchy, they, those words can be quite loaded for some people and they can have quite, um, a strong reaction to, you know, oh, that's a misogynistic. Well, what do you mean by that? And they can take it as a personal attack. So can you just talk about the reaction that you've had to the book? Yeah, totally. Um, to be honest, it's been really, um, positive. Um, I, yeah, people have been, um, yeah, really positive about it. I've had endorsements from Olivia Coleman, the actor, um, from Angela Rayner, the um, deputy leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, and lots of others. And yeah, it's been yeah overwhelmingly positive. Um, and I haven't actually haven't had my. I've you know I have had trolling about it you know online, but I'm used to you know trolling, and it actually yeah it hasn't been particularly bad. So we go. Can you say a bit more about? trolling because um being the woman's correspondent at the independent and the topics that you cover and the way that say a platform like twitter or x is now do you find that trolling is more prevalent on certain um topics that you write about or is it just in in general abortion stories you get anti-abortion ideologues trolling you that would be something which, you know, seems to invoke kind of, uh, you know, kind of angry responses from people. Um, hmm, other particularly, I'm going to think what other issues, domestic abuse. Um, yeah, I would say those are the first two, uh, two that spring to mind. 
Okay, that's interesting. As in like domestic abuse, people are saying, oh, it's not that big an issue or denying um, it or she deserves it or they deserve it or that sort of thing. So you'll get things like, um, I also think sexual violence and that wouldn't be, that's, I'm just thought I didn't say that issue. It wouldn't be necessarily that they're trolling me, but I think those are kind of issues which seem to, and I have had trolling around those issues when I've written about them, but it's more just, it just seems to, um, yeah, invoke with sexual violence. You know, people will say things like, oh, you know, this victim, let's say an anonymous victim has come forward to the media to speak out about a celebrity, you know, and it's 10 years later. And, you know, um, why didn't she go to the, the fact basically that she didn't go to the police in the first place? Uh, you often see that's used to, you know, undermine and discredit their allegation. And then in terms of like trolling, when I've written about domestic abuse, you get a lot of whataboutism from people and just people saying, actually, you know, people just sending me the maddest tweets with the most, you know, completely false, erroneous data, which is basically trying to say that there's an epidemic of violence against men being perpetrated against women. And they're just sending you like completely wrong um, data. And they're just trying to kind of say, challenge the fact that, yeah, we know in this country, let's say in England and Wales, between two and three women are killed by a former or current partner on average every single week. And they're just trying to, you know, they're just trying to push. It's like they've got a completely warped, twisted view of reality. And, you know, their grip on reality is very, very loose. It's like they're living in a different world where men are the massive victims when it comes to domestic abuse and sexual violence. That's essentially what they think. And like, I don't even want to talk more about what they think because some of it is just so mad and ludicrous. It, yeah, so the um, the he's from what's his name Stephen Bear from Jordan was he Jordy Shaw or yeah some reality yeah, TV show he, yeah he got released from prison this week didn't he yeah and I happened to see that his name was trending on Twitter and then I just clicked into it and a lot of the tweets were very kind of like you know he. He shouldn't have, he should have served more time. What he did was horrible. But then some of the tweets I was mm -hmm. seeing was just, you know, explaining away what he did and saying, oh, she deserved it. And just, wow. Oh, just, yeah. just really wild, wild yeah. statements. Yeah. That is, you know, that doesn't shock me because of the role that I'm in. So I'm, you know, I'm aware of, you know, how kind of like, commonly held you know a lot of misogynistic views are but i do think that would shock a lot of people i think you know people do live in their own respective echo chambers and you know probably have a bit of a kind of blind eye and oblivious to you know other people's views and i think yeah like and to go back to andrew tate that's the thing the kind of sentiment of the views that Tate is pushing and espousing, they're not new. You know, lots of men hold similar views like that, but he's, you know, someone who's built up a massive platform um, to, you know, share those views. And do you think that when you have someone like him with all these kind of trappings of so-called success saying these things, it gives more of a permission for men to say these things out loud, things that they may have just been thinking? Definitely, uh, 100%. Um, not only does it, um, you know, kind of 
make these views more prevalent because you know lots of people are absorbing his opinions and you know potentially adopting them um as their own they're also you know being indoctrinated and brainwashed by him you know you could say he's indoctrinated you know a whole generation of young men some people might say that was too far but he's definitely had a strong in- influence and you know a lot of young men out there and yeah he's one of the most googled people in the world which i guess that is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that, you know, a lot of people will be Googling him, not because they agree with him. But I do think, you know, there's no two ways about it. You know, he's got a dedicated, loyal fan base who love him. Mm. So you released your book last year, your first book. What have you got coming up, coming up next? More work with the independent? Are you going to be writing another book? What else do you have going on? Um, I guess I'm just enjoying, you know, not having to work like to do this book. I had to do the book on top of my job as the women's correspondent. And that's already, you know, a labor intensive, you know, job. Um, and that was so the book was written, you know, weekends, late nights, early mornings type thing. So no plan for another book at present. Would love to do one in the future. Would love to, um, you know, write some, um, creative writing some fiction not just non-fiction yeah i'm just focusing on my role at the um independent and definitely got some other projects in the pipeline but yeah not nothing's you know set in stone yet nothing that i could talk about yet so given all the work that you do and um the insights that you gain from your reporting is there any one thought that you want to leave listeners with maybe about the issues that you cover or patriarchy or your book anything one last thing, um, I guess just, you know, like whatever you want, I'm not going to tell you to, you know, do some particular thing or like, you know, sign a petition or, you know, write a book or go out to a protest because, you know, the way that people want to, you know, shine a light on injustice or tackle um, injustice is very different. But yeah, do something, whatever it is that you want to do, it'll be deeply personal and subjective for people. But yeah do something to try and make the world a better place. But that sounds so trite and cliched. But yeah, to be honest, that's not really a phrase I like to use, but it's the first one that came into my head. Yeah, I I love that. I think that's really important. Every Everyone has the capacity to, to do something. Um, thank you so much for your time, Maya. It's been really great talking to you. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Have a lovely um yeah weekend. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.